Mark 14, 53 through 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began saying again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. And we recognize your wisdom, your infinite, perfect wisdom and the redemption of wretched sinners like us. On a fleshly level, Lord, it doesn't make sense that you would you would send your very Son to, to die and to be pierced and to be spat upon and mocked and bruised for us. It doesn't make sense that the Son of God should die, but... That was according to your plan, and we see it as a perfect plan. We see that it was necessary that Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't, that he died taking the wrath of God for all the sins of all who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him. He died and he rose again, conquering death and sin. So, Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for our time. I ask that you would bless Pastor Cody. Give him grace to rightly handle the word. 
that you would anoint the very words of God and that you would encourage us, that you would rebuke us, that you would conform us to your image. Please bless this time today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you were with us last week, you may remember my opening question. If you don't, I'm going to use it again. In many ways, we are continuing of what began last week. I opened with the question last week, which was probably the most odd of questions, because we all know it's true. And the question is, did you fail this week? And of course, the answer is yes. We have all failed this week. We've all sinned this week. We came in here as sinners, we'll walk out as those who will continue to sin. And so the question remains for us then, what do we do with our sin when we see it? What do we do when we fail yet again? This account in Mark 14 employs all of Mark's storytelling genius up to this point. As you remember, one of Mark's favorite words is immediately or urgently. Things would move quickly in Mark's Gospels. And he jumps from one thing to the next. And, but, quickly moving from scene to scene. He does so here. You'll just notice that 53 is the beginning of the scene and then bam, 54, he switches scenes again. 55 jumps back to the remaining, the, the beginning of the scene in 53. The tension in the middle of this whole passage is is great. Christ is presumably upstairs in a room. Peter is downstairs in the courtyard. And the story is told in such a way as to describe simultaneous events. Two things that are happening at the exact same time. In Mark's quick and immediate style of writing, he deploys all that he has to accentuate the tension of the situation To help us see the difference between the situations. Namely, one, Christ is upstairs. And two, Peter is down. All to to draw our eyes to the argument that Christ alone is our solid rock when under trial or in Failure. Christ alone is our solid rock when under trial or in failure. So let's go back to the opening question. We all do different things when we fail. The world does their things, right? You fail yet again. I fought this sin for so many years. Name a sin. And yet again we fall and we commit that sin. So what do we do? What do you do? All kinds of things, don't we? I want to go be by myself for a while. Wallow in my self-pity. Let's go do something else to take my mind off of it. Well, I did it this time again. Might as well just do it again. I already committed it once. Why not two or three times? Feel sorry for ourselves. There's all types of things that we do. But if the answer that Christ alone is our solid rock when under trial or in failure, that's why you came to church today. Because at the end of the day, the believer in Jesus Christ knows that none of those things that we might go to to console ourselves in our failure is ultimately going to answer the shame and the grief and the guilt of our sin. And so we go to the Bible and we say, what does Christ have to offer me? 
And so you come into church and you don't all look the same. And you don't all have the same background. And you don't have the same sin tendencies. But you're here. Because you're here because Christ is the solid rock, or I hope he is. And if he's not, maybe you're hearing that for the first time. And let me be the first to tell you this morning that he's the one who can take all that away. That's what the text is going to argue for us. Let's look at it. I've divided it into three sections. 53 through 59 is the perfection of Christ. From 60 to 65, we'll look at the public testimony of Christ. And from 66 to 72, we'll note the courage and cowardice of Peter. Well, 53 begins this scene. It's early in the morning. Christ is led to the high priest. Joseph Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. Name may have been something to the meaning of inquisitor. He ruled as one of the longest reigning high priests at that time. Most times the tenure was about four years. He was 18 or 19 years. They bring him up to the chief priests, the elders and the scribes together. This is the Sanhedrin or the council. And that's a 70 member council. The scribes were the lawyers. The elders represented the most significant families of the region. And they would take you into a room and you would be seated in the middle. If you were Christ, he would have been seated in the middle and they would have surrounded him kind of in a horseshoe around him. A clerk on the left, a clerk on the right to take notes of what's happening. And they would they would talk, they would counsel. And the prosecution would be anyone that would come in and give witness and testimony. It seems awfully strange that early in the morning probably somewhere between midnight and three, there's so many witnesses. It was normal to try a person in the Jewish day immediately upon arrest in the Jewish system, not necessarily in the Roman system, because the Jewish law made no provision for detainment before trial. It almost seems, and I think we could probably say prearranged, that there were so many there to give Witness against Christ, maybe even pre-bribed, that would function as prosecutors against Christ. You'll notice in the way the narrative goes, and we'll pick up 54 here in a minute, but 55 through 59, the chief priests, the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus in order to see if he was who he says he was and he was perfect. No, that's not what the text says. Look at the Bible, verse 55. They're seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This is a mock court. This is a kangaroo court. This is no intention of getting justice. But actually with the intention of destroying him. These were the long-standing enemies of Christ all the way back to chapter 3, verse 6 is where we first see the desire of the Pharisees and the Herodians and others to destroy Christ. And now they have finally gotten their day and they're wasting no time. And so they bring up witnesses. Verse 56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. From Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19 and Deuteronomy 35, you had to have at least two witnesses that were in agreement. And one after another, these people would come and they stood before Christ and they bore testimony and none of it matched. Therefore, throwing out all the testimony 
57, some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build up another not made with hands. Now there's an accusation. That's That wasn't light. John 2.19 is where Christ speaks about this. They've twisted his words, though. Christ was speaking about his body. But if you were in the temple... And you made some sort of statement of going to come in and destroy. That was worthy at that time of death. Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah prophesies of the destruction of the temple. He's immediately arrested and brought before the court as a criminal deserving death. A threat against the temple was basically a death sentence. They're thinking we've got him here. This is a reason we can destroy him. But notice... Verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Brothers and sisters, our Christ was perfect, even in the eyes of his enemies. They alone couldn't even find anything. They had to skirt the law. They had to commit a mockery of the court's system. Even in the eyes of sinful men... He was perfect. All these testimonies are invalidated due to their lack of unanimity. And instead of seeking to give him a fair trial, they are seeking to put him to death. And yet, yet again, after so many chapters in Mark, they have come up against the perfection of Christ and they cannot overcome him. Second point, 60 through 65 Note the public testimony of Christ. The high priest is obviously frustrated. He takes over as the prosecution. That's an unusual thing. But he stands up, verse 60, probably red-faced, angrily. Have you no answer to make? Notice Christ is sitting quietly, not answering. Why? Why should he answer? If he answered the first one, the second one's going to be different than the first. He's going around and around in circles. Do not answer a fool in his folly. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And so the high priest is going to ask him three questions. First one. Are you the Christ? Excuse me, the third one. First one was, have you no answer to make? Second, what is it that these men testify against you? Still no answer. Third question, verse 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Maybe there was a tipping point. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple, verse 58, that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Maybe they're thinking... Maybe this is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Because how else do you build a magnificent structure like the temple without hands in three days? Maybe that was the tipping point. Who knows? But he asked the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Notice Christ's answer, verse 62. I am. I am. And... You will see 
the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What a statement. There's few times in the Gospel of Mark that Christ has has made mention of his divinity, of his sonship. And yet here he, in the face of his enemies, in the very lion's den as it were, he does not shirk, but boldly declares, I am. And notice what he says, the son of man seated at the right hand of power. If you've been with us through our study of the gospel of Mark, you know this phrase, son of man, is a well-used one. Mark uses it often. And I wanted to just take us to to three different passages this morning to help us better understand this Son of Man phrase. Because it's used in order to help us better understand Jesus. So go with me to chapter 2 verse 10 of Mark. Mark chapter 2 verse 10. This is the healing of the paralytic in Mark 2, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in the spirit that thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Here's what I want you to note, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ, who bears authority. The authority to forgive sins. He's the the Son of God that as believers in Jesus Christ or unbelievers sitting here today, we are called to give allegiance to that authority and recognize it. Thus every knee will bow at the authority of Christ when he comes again. So we see that the Son of Man has authority. Now, the Jews would have been thinking, that's great. This is exactly what we want. A man with authority. But also look at chapter 14, verse 41. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Wait a minute. We wanted a Son of Man who had all authority and could kick all our enemies out. This is the Son of Man who would come to suffer and die at the hands of sinful men. You can hear Psalm 2. You can hear of the power of Christ, the Son of Man. And you can also hear Isaiah 53 in these passages, the suffering servant. But that's not just two. There's at least a third. And we see the third here in chapter 14, verse 62. And we already saw it in chapter 13, verse 26. Look at 13, 26. And when, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. What's the third Son of Man? What's the third attribute of the Son of Man? And that is that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is coming again. And this time he will come to judge. This is what what makes the high priest in verse 63 so irate. 
You have the high priest, small h, small p, being then judged by the great high priest of Hebrews. And he's going to come again and judge them. Mercy now, but mercy not then. So, what view of Christ do you have this morning? You've got to take him all in. You can't get part and parcel of Jesus. You can't say, I like the one that forgives my sins, but I'm not really sure I like the one who has all authority. I like the Jesus that loves me now, but I'm really not interested in the Jesus that's going to judge me. If that's your belief in Jesus, that's not a belief in Jesus. That's your own version of Jesus. That's not the biblical one. So what's your view of him? He will come again and he will require that we bow the knee. And he will judge us for our sins. And for those who have not been made alive. For those of us who have not had their sins forgiven. For those of us who have not sought him in faith. And been changed. And had our sins removed by his blood. That judgment is one. To weigh carefully. That judgment is a life or death decision. And yet that judgment for the believer in Jesus Christ is not one of punishment, but one of reward. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Me, faithful? No. But Christ, faithful for me. And I'm rewarded not on my merit, but on his. You can have that. If you do not know Christ, that can be yours. It is simply an acknowledgement of your sin, a receiving of faith of his perfection and your imperfection of receiving his atoning blood for your sinful blood of letting him take your sin and then you not living like you want but living in humble obedience to his divine authority what is it that keeps christ so strong here In the face of his enemies in the lion's den. The high priest tearing his garments. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. He's saying he's the son of God. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. They pronounce a death sentence upon him. And he isn't just marched out. He's given a test. They had a twisted test back then. If you claimed you were Christ... They would take the scriptures and they had twisted it and said, great, we'll cover your head and we'll smack you. We'll beat you. And the test was, if you're really Christ, you can smell who did it. Prophesy. Tell us who who beat you. Striking him. Humiliating him. Spitting on him. Who is it? What is it that keeps people under persecution, under trial, strong to the end? And it's the only thing that keeps us faithful under trial and faithful under persecution and faithful when we fail is where our eyes are directed. As Christ's eyes were directed to the Father in the garden, our eyes must be looking to Christ. Armando Valladares is a poet, an artist who spent 22 years as a political prisoner in Cuba. 
In 2016, he wrote an article for the Washington Post. And this is what he said. Antagonizing believers is a particular speciality of the Castro regime. To them, faith is especially dangerous because it kindles the conscience and keeps it burning when enemies advance. Viva Cristo Rey. Long live Christ the King were the last words of so many of my friends who were dragged to the shooting wall. Eventually, the government realized that this was a battle cry for freedom, one that came from the deepest part of the men they were killing, one that was only inspiring more men to die faithful to their consciences and to something greater than Fidel Castro. Their executioners realized that an expression of faith was more powerful than the explosion of a gun, and so eventually they gagged them. Close quote. You see, your version of Christ is what gets you through trial, failure, and persecution and hardship. Long live Christ the King. Well, he's accused of blasphemy. He's condemned to death. The death sentence is pronounced, but the Jews had no power to execute him. Only thus the Romans did, so they turned him over to Rome. We'll look at that next week. As they're striking him, maybe Isaiah 60 Uh, Excuse me, Isaiah 50 verse 6 is ringing through his mind. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Peter may be remembering this occasion in 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. That's happening upstairs. What's happening downstairs? Let's look at this last section, verse 66 through 69. Let's look first of all at the courage of Peter. Yeah, he had, he had a, a moment of weakness there in the garden. He fled, but apparently he didn't run too far because he circled back around and he follows them right into the courtyard. At a distance, but he gets up close. They light a fire in this courtyard early in the morning and, and Peter's there warming himself. And as the light dances up around him, one of the servant girls of the high priest, sort of a, someone who's manning the door, recognizes him. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. This is the first denial, verse 68. No, no, I don't. I neither know nor understand what you mean. What was that again? I didn't quite hear you. I don't quite understand your your dialect. Your accent's a little different than mine. What'd you say? I don't I don't think I understand what you meant. And he moves from basically the porch to out into the courtyard, getting a little farther away. The the heat's not just coming from the fire. And the rooster crowed once. That was probably around 12.30, 2 o'clock, somewhere in that range. They, these roosters would crow. The study's been done. They would kind of just go right along like a clock. And they would crow about every hour. So whenever this first one struck, there was about another hour before he would deny him three times. Well, the servant girl apparently follows him a little bit or at least stirs up some of the bystanders. This man, he, he's one of them. And again, he denied it. And then the third time, 
Certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. Your dialect, your accent is a little different than ours. You're not from Texas, are you? But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Basically saying, may God strike me dead if I am lying. And then he utters these words. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remember how Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The imagery here is vivid in my mind. Maybe yours as well. Literally under the sounds of Christ being smacked and beaten and spit upon. Mocking him and laughing and jeering. is Peter. Denying his Christ. Luke 22 verse 61 says that at that last time he denied him. Christ turned and directed his gaze. And looked right into Peter's face. And Peter looks into his face. And it all comes clear. We have to remember here this morning. That this book was written for the early church. Who was suffering under Roman persecution. And you can imagine the humility of Peter. One. But also two. The, 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 the shot of, of strength. That was pumped into the early persecuted church. As they're seeing afresh. Christ remaining purposeful. And perfect under this great persecution. Yet even while Peter is Denying his discipleship with Christ. Christ committed in the face of Peter's cowardice. For them to observe the failure of Peter. One of their leaders under trial. And yet while Christ was faithful under trial for Peter and for us. For me and for you this morning. Peter here serving as an example for the early church of how to not interact in the midst of hostile territory. Warning even the early church. Look look to Christ. But recognize here Peter. Bold, rock, strong. Statement of affirmation. I will follow you all the way to the end. And yet serving that as a warning of saying. That bold affirmation does not equal faithfulness. You can march into church any day and say. I love Jesus. That's no measure of faithfulness. That's a warning for us too. Can you imagine the strength that would have been given to them. To see the faithfulness of Christ. Even in the midst and the face of Peter's desertion. I want to spend just a few minutes. As we close here. Thinking about. Peter. And his response to his failure. How we can learn some things here. First of all. I just want us to note in verse 68. He denied it. Saying, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. When we are, are, are facing temptation and sin, the power of the temptation is oftentimes in the timing. We're by ourselves. We're alone. In today's world, so much of our sin, we strive, as Peter is doing here, to, to sin in anonymity. 
As if we, we don't want it to be known by anybody else. That's the power of the private search on your internet browser. That's the power of delete history on your internet browser. I don't want anybody to know. And that's oftentimes where we run to, isn't it? I don't want anybody to know. And so when we fail, just block everybody else out. I don't want to confess this sin. I don't want anybody to know that I've just failed yet again. And yet our faithfulness publicly is going to spring from private faithfulness. So what do we do when we fail? Well, the the answer is to do what Peter did, which is repent. This is a tale of two men. This is a tale of Christ in contrast with Peter. But it's also a tale of another two men. Peter in contrast with Judas. That's the story between the lines here. Because Mark doesn't ever mention Judas again. We saw him a couple weeks ago after he betrayed Christ. But we haven't seen him since. And we're not going to see him again in Mark. And yet this is the tale of not only Christ and his And his courage in the face of Peter's cowardice. It's also a tale of Peter's true repentance in the face of Judas's false repentance. I just want to go or encourage you, ask you to go to Mark 20, excuse me, to Matthew 27 with me. Matthew 27, verse 3 through 5. So when we fail this week, there's two ways we can handle this. One, we can follow the example of Peter. Or two, we can follow the example of Judas. Let's look at Judas first. Judas gets to a point where he recognizes that he should not have done what he had done. He should not have betrayed Christ. He should not have, he should not have sold him, as it were, for a mere 30 pieces of silver, a mere price of a slave. And so then when Judas, chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 3, his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. So first of all, I just want you to note, he went the wrong direction, didn't he? I've got blood money. Let's get rid of the blood money. That will help alleviate my grief and shame from my sin. Does that work? Let's just get it out of my hands. Fling it to their feet. No. He departed and he went and he saw Peter and he confessed his sin and he acknowledged Christ as Savior and said, I've done wrong. No. What else is there to do? I'm, I'm so grief stricken by my sin. The only thing to do is to be more selfish and I'm going to kill myself. And that's exactly what he does. He hangs himself. This is not true repentance. This is false repentance. Instead of running to the Savior, he runs to himself to carry out his sin. To, to try to carry his sin. But look what Peter does. It's 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 a it's all of it's all of six words, and he broke down and wept. He acknowledged the fact that his sin was wrong, and he was grief stricken over his sin. He was overwhelmed 
Brothers and sisters, this week when we sin and we feel the guilt of our sin, when we feel that shame, that is grace. Shame is grace. The whole world will tell you shame is horrible. We want you to feel good about yourself. No, shame is grace because that tells us it's wrong and points us where to get it fixed. Which is Christ who has carried the burden of our guilt. And so in our shame, we simply do the one thing we can do, which is not try to fix it ourselves, but acknowledge that he has borne that sin for us. He has carried our shame and our guilt and our sorrow. And so we turn to him and we say, he did it for me. And so I desire now in that grace to walk faithfully Yet again, yet again, put one foot in front of the other. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen through 14. This is what Peter did. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. We want to run and do what Judas did. We want to hide. We want to try to be anonymous. Or, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. David knew this well. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. Whose, whose transgression is covered as he says. But he gets to verse 8 and 9 of Psalm 32. Read it this afternoon. He says let me counsel you. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me do the work of a biblical counselor. Sit across from you and tell you what not to do. Don't be like the horse or the mule. That has to have a bridle in its mouth. And be pulled to where you need to go. Don't be like me, David. Don't be like me. Don't just have to have God send someone and yank you into repentance. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. Look to Christ and come gently. That's what David's telling us. And what happens? What happens when we repent of our sin after we have failed yet again? Is it just that we Still have to walk through this life feeling horrible? No, there's actually reconciliation that happens. Look at the end of the story. Mark 16, verse 7. But go. This is the angel on the tomb. But go tell his disciples, but not Peter, because Peter failed. That he's going before you to Galilee. No. I think it's so striking that Mark includes that word, Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. As if to say, it's okay. I went to the cross for you, Peter. I have forgiven your sin. I have forgiven your denial in my darkest hour. And that's what he says to us. That there is reconciliation through repentance. That there is restoration through repentance. That as we look to Christ and the cross, as we look at the Gospels and we see the work of Christ for us, our burden is lifted. That guilt and shame is rolled away, as the song says. And we're able to walk out this life, not perfectly, but with the grace to seek Him yet again in faithfulness. Christ is our rock. Alone, 
He is our solid rock when under trial or failure. Brothers and sisters, let us be faithful, if for nothing else this week, when we fail to run to him. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to know that Peter the rock is not our rock. That our parents are not our rock. Our job is not our rock. Our two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years of doing things the right way and not falling back into that sin that was so hard for us is not, that's not our rock. Our, our track record of success is not our rock. But Christ is our rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. No other ground. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, we thank you that you have taken us in our wretched state of sinfulness, of darkness, of death, and you have concreted, cemented our feet upon the rock of Christ. And so, Father, we trust that as believers in Jesus Christ this week, when we fail, that you will turn our eyes upon Jesus to look yet again. That we will be quick to walk in repentance. We'll not have to be yanked and pulled and prodded. But by the recognition of our sin, by the power of your spirit, we will humble ourselves and acknowledge yet again the wonder of our Savior and look to you for yet fresh grace to be faithful, to fight the good fight of faith. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Thank you for Christ. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.